Well, hey, one more little quick thing before we dive into our message. Some of you guys may have already heard, but with our heart for the house, we met our goal. Come on. Now, let me just tell you how big of a miracle that is. I don't know if you guys ever look at the financial sheets. You should because that's where you know where all your money's going at the end of the year. We provide that every year. But our church, on average, brings in about $600,000. Now, that's not a whole lot. When you start covering you know, $7,000 a month rent, which is what we pay here, and, and, and send all that we send out to missionaries and all that we do, like that's not a whole lot. Um, and to raise $600,000 which we did in three months, in addition to the 600000 that you guys are already giving of your tithes and offerings. That was a miracle, you guys. Yeah. It really was. That was, it was the biggest step of faith that I had ever taken in my life. And I'll tell you, I just want to say thank you guys so much for your generosity. Many of you guys, you just made sacrificial gifts. And so I thank you for that. Thank you so much. Someone came in and asked me, uh, even this morning, was like, hey, can I still give to Heart for the House? Absolutely. If you want to still continue to give to it, the 600000 is what it costs uh, for us to buy the land, but there's all kinds of stuff that there's already expenses coming in, stuff we got to pay for site maps, you know, uh, the arc, all the different stuff that's got to come along with that, surveys, everything else. So if you still want to continue to give to that, you can absolutely give toward that. Plus, at some point, we're going to have to build a building. Amen. <laughs> And so um, one last prayer request, um, because you're probably wondering, well, what are the next steps? Well, we got the money. We're ready to make the purchase. But first, we've got to get the zoning to go through. And so I became a little more informed and educated about the process. It goes from the planning department to the zoning department, then the zoning department over to the city council. And each one of those three has to check off on it. So that's kind of the process. And we're still on the, the stage one. Um, and so, but we're just believing God that we're going to see God's hand, God's favor on every aspect of this, okay? And so, uh, please be praying about this. I mean, just commit this to the Lord. I, that, that's what we've got to do right there is not lean on our own understanding, but saying, God, we trust you. We believe that we have your favor. We believe that you've already gone before us. I mean, man, if he could just cause us to be able to raise $600,000 in three months' time, then he can easily move on the hearts of those that have to check this and say, oh, it's a church. Here, let's just sign off on that. Amen? Amen. And so we believe that's going to happen. Hallelujah. Yes. And the Lord good. Yes. Are y'all excited? I hope you guys are excited because God's about to do something, man, and he's going to do something even here in this place. So why don't we start by opening up our Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3, where we're going to continue in our series, Unhindered. And if you are just joining us, can I just say that we have been taking an expository approach to this series, meaning that we have been going verse by verse, going into detail about what it was that Paul was saying to the body of believers in the city of Colossae. But even more, we've been looking at how God's word is applicable to us today as 21st century believers. And I'd like to highlight that very point if I could, because I often hear people say things like, the Bible is antiquated, and that it really isn't applicable for people today, but friends, God's word does not have an expiration date. I promise you that you and I will expire before God's word expires. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Now, there's been a lot of people that have obviously rejected God's word as applicable to their lives, and they've done so for a couple of different reasons. Like one is because it speaks truth and it, it causes their hearts to be convicted or offended. And hey, I get it. I mean, like truth will often challenge us and, and it confronts our sins and no one likes that. And so it's easier to just dismiss something as um, something that we just need to throw off that we really don't have need of. But watch this. Each and every one of us have need of change in our lives. And matter of fact, that's one of the many reasons that we should embrace God's word is because there's not a person alive that doesn't have some area in their life that needs change. And if we will allow it, God's word will reveal those areas that need change. But watch this. God's word, it doesn't just reveal your imperfections and then leave you abandoned. God's word also gives you the power to live out the life that he's called you to. Another reason that people often reject God's word is because they don't understand certain aspects of it. And what I mean by that is that they will either hear or read some passage in scripture thinking that it says one thing when in reality it's saying something completely different than what they're looking at in face value. As a matter of fact, I think one of these days I may just do a series called Lost in Translation because there's a, a lot of verses in the Bible that, that translators, they've tried to translate between the Greek and, and the Hebrew, but whenever they substitute that word in the English, the translation gets lost. As a matter of fact, we, we talked a little bit about that even last week whenever we looked at the word submit. We also talked about what it means whenever we look at the word love in the Bible because we look at the word love and oftentimes we think, oh, love is this, but God says, no, 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 that's how you see love, but, but I see love as this. And, and it was even true of what we talked about, like I said last week, with, with submission. When we look at those different words, they're oftentimes much different than our understanding of them. And you'll find that this will be the case many occasions in the Bible. The words that were written by those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they were not written in English. You know that, right? Like they were written in Greek, Hebrew, and even some Aramaic. And there are many instances where a Hebrew or a Greek word simply does not have an English equivalent. Zondervan Publishing uh, attempted to, to bridge that gap by writing what's called the Amplified Bible. And for example, if I can just give you a little bit of example here. Last week, uh, we looked at Colossians 3.21. I think that's where we, we left off last week. And this was the scripture. This is what it says in, in most all your Bibles, whether it's the NIV, ESV, King James. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And that's great. And, and that's true. But I want to read to you uh, what the Amplified Bible says, because the Amplified Bible really gives a little bit better understanding here. It says, fathers, do not provoke or irritate or exasperate your children with demands that are trivial or unreasonable or humiliating or abusive, nor by favoritism or indifference. Treat them tenderly with loving kindness so that they will not lose heart and become discouraged or unmotivated with their spirits broken. 
Now, here's the cool thing. I had not read that verse in the Amplified Bible whenever I put my message together last week. But if you heard last week's message, you'll notice that there were several things that I taught in my message that you're going to see are listed right here in the Amplified Bible, but they're not in other translations. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, why is that? Well, that's primarily because Bible translators, they try to do what's called a word-for-word translation. And I understand why, because they want to try to stay as close to the original text's wording as possible to ensure its accuracy. But this approach, it does come with limitations, meaning that the original languages of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, they often use idioms, they use expressions, they use grammatical structures that we simply don't have. And so the reader is oftentimes left misunderstanding the intended meaning from the author. Let me just give you one more example, and then we'll jump into Colossians chapter 3. This is something that Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we know something is not right here, right? Because certainly, God is not telling us that we should hate our family. As a matter of fact, just last week, we read in the Bible where it says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But if someone were to just read Luke 14, 26 at face value, then they'd be confused. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, the word that gets translated as hate is actually the Greek word meseo. And it doesn't actually mean hate. It means to love less. And so whenever you get that understanding that it means love less, then you can see it as, you know, whenever it says, you know, don't hate your family, what he's really saying is, no, don't make sure that you love them less than me, not hate. And I share all that with you because people will often quote things from the Bible without understanding the cultural or linguistic context. And often that leads to people being confused or deceived. See, that's why it's critical, church, that we dive into. I hear someone say, oh, I don't like all that Greek and Hebrew. You need to know some of that Greek and Hebrew because that's how your Bible was written. And whenever you try to translate it in English, you have your understanding of an English word, which there's not always an English equivalent. So just to give a little bit of an understanding as to why that's I share Hebrew and Greek with you, it's not so I can be like, oh, I know Greek and Hebrew. It's I want us to get a better understanding of what God's trying to communicate to us so that we can make it applicable to our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, today's text, just like last week's text, is one of those verses that oftentimes gets misrepresented. And the reason why is because they haven't done their due diligence as to what this scripture is really saying. They'd rather just read a verse and say, see, the Bible condones slavery. Which, by the way, that's the verse that comes up next in Colossians 3 because we go verse by verse. We don't skip by verses. But watch this. Making a statement like that is intellectually dishonest. Yet most people never take the time to actually investigate the truth. First, let me just throw out a 
One more thought here to you, and then we're going to read Colossians 3.22. Anytime you come across something in Scripture and it doesn't make sense, like it doesn't be, uh, seem to be consistent with what you have read in other places in Scripture, dig deeper. Because Scripture is always consistent. A good rule to use whenever you're interpreting Scripture is interpret Scripture with Scripture. And the example that I gave you earlier, if I read Luke 14, 26, where it says to hate my wife, then I might leave just thinking, wow, I can't believe that the Bible condones that. Did you read that? See what the Bible says, right? But again, just a little bit of due diligence would show what the Scripture really means. But it requires us studying and not just reading one text in order for us to get its true meaning. Now, hopefully I've prepped you for Colossians 3.22. That's a big, long introduction for this preparation. So let's read it. As a matter of fact, since I kind of uh, gave a little bit of uh, credence here to uh, Amplified Bible, let me read it out of the Amplified Bible. Colossians 3.22 says, Servants, in everything obey those who are your masters on earth, not only with external service as those who merely please people, but with sincerity of heart, because of your fear of the Lord. Now, depending upon what translation you have, your Bible's going to use one of three different words. It's going to say servants like mine, or it'll say bond servants or slaves. Now, if you read a translation with the latter, then you might think that the Bible is condoning slavery. As a matter of fact, I've heard people use this exact verse right here and accuse God's word of doing that very thing. And I'll tell you what I have found has been true of those who do. In almost every instance that I've witnessed, it's been someone whose intent was to discredit God's word. Like in other words, it wasn't someone who out of their devotion in their time with the Lord, they came up on a scripture. No, they probably just Googled something like controversial Bible verses or Bible contradictions. And they found that it fit their narrative and so they ran with it. Never actually taking the time to do any scholarly study. I mean, why would they? They're really not interested in the truth. Church, this is why we have to study and show ourselves approved. So that whenever we hear people saying things and they present them as truth, we will know what is really true or not. And watch this. Not only for ourselves, but also for those who ask about the hope that we have. I mean, we've got to be like Philip. Y'all remember what have we read about Philip back in our all-in series in Acts chapter 8? Whenever Philip ran up to the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot, he heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. And he asked him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man responded, he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip did that very thing. See, church, we need to understand Scripture not only for our own sake, but also for the sake of others. Y'all with me this morning? Now, let's dive into today's text. Colossians 3, 22 starts with the Greek word doulos. Again, it's translated as either servant, bondservant, or slave. And it is a very, very common word in the Greek. As a matter of fact, you'll see that it's mentioned 127 times in the New Testament. And in almost every instance, 
it's referring to a servant. As a matter of fact, Paul referred to himself as a doulos. He referred to himself several times. Not only Paul, but so did James, so did Peter, so did Jude, and so did John. Just to, to put this word here in context. In Romans 1, 1, Paul opens up by saying this. He says, I, Paul, a servant, a doulos, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, as your doulos, for Jesus' sake. So not only did Paul refer to himself as a servant of God, but he also referred to himself as a servant to people. Now, I'm mentioning this because this is the same word that Paul uses right here in Colossians 3, 22. And if you really want to go do your homework, then you can go out and study the 127 instances that it's used in the Bible, and you'll begin to see the context of what it means. But watch this, church. Never does the Bible condone the enslavement of another person. Not in the context of how we understand slavery here in our country. And so understand this distinction, understanding this distinction, it is absolutely huge. Because first of all, it's not condoning slavery, but second, we as followers of Christ are all called to be doulos, to be servants. And so it's with that understanding now that we can look at how this scripture applies to us. Paul said, servants, in everything, obey those who are your masters on earth. Now, a modern-day application of this verse might be like with the government or with our employers. That's what he's referencing whenever the Scripture says, your masters on earth. And so there is, first of all, a distinction between being a servant of Christ, like Paul mentioned, but then also a servant to mankind. Like being a servant of God means that we are a worshiper of God. But when we're talking about uh, being a servant to mankind, there is a distinction. As you probably already know, worship is uh, restricted to God and God alone. I know that some of you may have some employers or some bosses who act like they're God, right? But they're not. And so whenever Paul says that we're to obey in everything... Everything is not all-inclusive. Just like we talked about last week whenever Paul said for children to obey their parents, obedience is never to breach the barrier of what is considered illegal, unethical, or immoral. Remember that. It's never to breach the barrier of what is to be is considered going against what is illegal, unethical, or immoral. And, and church, uh, this is true of everyone whose authority that we're under. And this isn't just true. I'll just give you an example there like uh, of with our, our boss, but like it's also true of our government. For example, during the pandemic, I had some friends who took the COVID vaccine, and I had friends who didn't. And I supported the right of those who refused to take it whenever it went against their conscience. As a matter of fact, 
like some of them lost their jobs because they refused to violate their conviction, and I commend them. But I also commend and support the rights of those who chose to take it. Some of you might be, well, but Pastor, where, where do you sit on the issue? Well, I just told you, if you have a conviction that you shouldn't do it, then you need to follow that conviction. But if you felt like you had the faith to do it, then be it unto you according to your faith. Are you with me? And watch this. I can promise you there's going to be plenty of instances, both in government and with your employers, where they may ask you to do something, and it's not congruent with your biblical values. And so whenever Paul says that as servants were to obey our earthly masters here in everything, those things are never to violate our biblical values. Like, for example, let's say that you are someone who answers the phone at your workplace and your employer says to you, well, if anyone asks for me, tell them that I'm not here. Yet you know that they are there, right? Don't lie for your boss, Hey, there's always another way to be able to say something. You can just say, hey, uh, I'm sorry, my boss is unavailable right now, but don't be unethical. Because remember, your first service is not for man. Your first service is unto the Lord. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Then we love and then we serve our neighbor. Amen? And so what we're talking about here, Paul is saying that this obedience comes within the confines of our biblical values. So that means whenever tax season is due, that you need to render unto Caesar what is Caesar. That means whenever your boss asks you to do something that may not fall within your normal task, but it is congruent with your biblical values, then you're obligated to comply. And watch this. Our obligation to comply isn't just so that we'll get a check at the end of the month, okay? And that's why Paul said, obey not only with external service as those who merely please people, but with sincerity of heart because of your fear of the Lord. See, this is where the ante is upped for us as the follower of Christ. Because the world, they will do things in order to please man, but God's word says that our obedience is to be rooted in sincerity, and it's to be rooted in our fear of the Lord. Now, let's just touch on this for a minute. Paul tells the Colossians that they're to be sincere. I mean, evidently, uh, not as much has changed as we think over the past 2,000 years. You see, sincerity is something that is a recurring theme in the Bible. And I promise you, it's going to be something that's going to be a recurring theme in your life. God isn't just interested on how things look on the outside, but God is interested in your heart. And the obedience that he asks of us towards those who we are under their authority is to be sincere. You know, to not be sincere, you know what that means? It simply means to not be self-seeking. Did you know that it's completely possible to be compliant on the outside while being rebellious on the inside? Now, if you don't understand that concept, then that just tells me you've never raised kids, right? <laughs> For that matter, that's the summarization of the Pharisees. Jesus says, hey, guys, 
You got it all together on the outside. You're like whitewashed tombs, man. You're clean. Yeah, on every outside, everything looks great. Meaning that there really wasn't anything that they could point to in terms of, of disobedience. But Jesus says, but on the inside, in your heart, you're full of dead men's bones. Church, write this down. God is concerned with the condition of our hearts. And you should be as well. Why? Because from the heart flow the issues of life. See, here's what I found to be true. When your heart's not right, it's but a matter of time before you quit. You say, quit what? Quit whatever you're doing. Grit alone will not get you across the finish line. Or let me say it this way, for those of you who say, oh, yeah, well, I'm tough. Okay, you know, maybe it gets you across the finish line, but you'll, get a, you'll come across the finish line bitter, exhausted, and discontent if your heart's not in it. I mean, why else do you think that we have so many people who don't like their jobs? Why do you think there are so many people who are still married, but they're not happy? It's because they're doing the things that they're supposed to do on the outside, but they've not tended to their heart. I'm going to be your spiritual cardiologist this morning and ask you, how's your heart doing? Are you making sure that you're guarding the things that you allow in it? What do you mean by that, pastor? I mean the things that you're allowing in, the, 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 the music, the, the, the movies you watch, the books, maybe even more importantly, the conversations that you allow Hey, how many of you have heard the saying, you are what you eat? Well, that couldn't be any more true whenever it comes to the condition of our heart. See, what Paul is telling us here, watch this. It's not just a command, it's a prescription. Are you with me? It's the way of freedom, which is really interesting to me because he's actually addressing us as servants. It's like he's saying, hey, servants. Here's how you walk in freedom. Do what's asked of you within the, the confines of what's biblical. But don't just do it because it's asked of you. Do it because you recognize that God is the master of all, and he's the one who has established all authority. See, that's why Paul says in the next two verses, in verses 23 and 24, he says, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Church, everything we do should be done out of our service for the Lord. And I love that Paul, he doesn't just end by saying, hey, work for the Lord and not for men. But then he lets us know that there's a reward for those who do so. Now, this is beautiful, I think, because God doesn't owe us anything. But watch this. He doesn't just give us any old thing. He gives us everything. He said that we will receive the inheritance, come on somebody, as our reward. Now, friends, all throughout the Bible, inheritance, it signifies a promise or a legacy. A future blessing. And in the Old Testament, it referred to a physical inheritance, kind of like the promised land. But the inheritance that Paul is talking about here is much greater. 
It's spiritual. It's, it's eternal. It's heavenly. It surpasses any earthly possession. It encompasses beautiful things like love, grace, wisdom, and an overflow of God's blessings on our lives. And so it's not just some breadcrumbs that God is giving us, but he's giving us his very best. And that's why Romans 8, 17 reminds us that we are connected at the hip. That's what it says in, in the original Greek. We are co-heirs with Christ himself. Church, this is what it means when it says that he has given us the keys of the kingdom. See, there are so many believers that trust that when we get to heaven, we're going to have a reward, and, and absolutely we will. But I want you to know that God has granted to us everything that we need for a godly life here on earth. You see, the inheritance means that you have a purpose. That you're no longer living aimlessly, but your life has great eternal significance. It means that you have hope in the time of trials. It comes with a deep-seated conviction that knows that hardships are temporary. Our inheritance also means that we are connected to the source of joy, which is Jesus. Listen, whenever we sing the song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, there's no greater news than that. Why? Because try as you may, the world can't produce joy. It can produce a counterfeit joy, which doesn't last. It can give you a, a false sense of joy. But Jesus gives us a joy that the world can't give us. And guess what? The world can't take away. You say, Pastor, well, what does all of that have to do with being a servant and serving with all of our heart? Everything. Because if we want to receive the inheritance, if we want to be co-heirs with Christ, we have to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. And how did Jesus walk? Well, Jesus himself told us in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to share in his glorious inheritance. Now, can I just say, if this doesn't make sense to you, it's because what we're talking about right now, it surpasses understanding. It's just something that you have to experience. Like, I can't adequately convey the peace of God that surpasses understanding, you just have to experience it. I can't put into words the feelings that you get whenever you're faced with death, and yet you don't fear dying. I can't describe the strength that comes only from the Spirit of God whenever you're faced with a circumstance that is beyond you and where most people would just throw in the towel. But you, you have something that wells up within you that is otherworldly and it causes you to refuse to quit. But you don't need me to describe it to you. All you need to do is experience it for yourself. I read you a few lyrics 
earlier from a song that many of us will be singing over the next few weeks. It says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And the next line says, let every heart prepare him room. And so I just want to ask, is your heart preparing him room? You say, Pastor, what do you mean? I mean, are you willing to allow God to transform every single area of your life? Listen, God desires for you and I to be free, to be really free. That's what it means whenever the Bible says, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. See, he will take a timid heart and he will turn it into courage. He will take a distracted mind and he will give it focus. He will take a weary soul and he will infuse it with his strength. He will take a wounded spirit and bring about healing. He will take a broken dream and he will breathe new life into it. Listen, with Christ, transformation isn't just a possibility, it's a promise. So I just want to bring this morning's message to a close by asking, in what area of your life do you need to see God move in? It's not rhetorical. I'm asking you to really consider this. What area, what area of your life do you need to see God's hand move? Do you need to see him move in your marriage? Do you need to see him move with your children? Do you need to see him move with your job or perhaps with your finances? Or perhaps it's something else. Perhaps you've been struggling with temptation or battling with your mental health. Or, or perhaps like you're needing direction from God right now and you don't know what God has for you next. What Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 33. Everyone stand with me if you would as I read this verse. Stand quickly. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Friends, Jesus has everything that you have ever needed or will ever need. And he wants to give it to you. But first, he must be the Lord of your life. And being Lord means more than just acknowledging that Jesus was the Son of God. It means that our life has to reflect it. But before that can even happen, it starts with a willful act of surrender. One that says, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, Friend, I want you to know that you can do so right now. And I can make you a promise is that Jesus will transform your life. He will transform you, not even on the outside. He will start on the inside, which will then affect the outside. He will transform. If you will allow him, if you will surrender, if you don't just say, well, I may stick my, you know, big toe in the water, just say, no, you got to be willing to go all in and submerge yourself 
under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you will do that, friend, there's nothing greater than that. I've said this so many times, I know I sound like a broken record player. But if the world was better, we wouldn't have met at church. We would have met at a bar or something. Are, are you with? We met at, we'd have met at the club. The world is not better. Plus, what profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Friend, we know that one day we will stand before God. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the moment we breathe our last breath and we slip into eternity, we stand before a holy God. And even in me saying a holy God, volumes could not even fill all of what that means. And we have an eternity that is before us. Just in case you don't know, for those who don't know, like this life isn't all there is. I'm telling you, this life is a vapor. When we die, all that really dies is this flesh of ours. But our spirit, it's eternal. And listen, when we slip into eternity, we will spend eternity in one of two places. Either heaven with God or in a place called hell. You may say, well, man, I can't believe God would send someone to hell. You know what? God doesn't send people to hell. People choose it. Yeah. See, here's the reality. The reality is right here on earth, we can choose for Jesus to pay for our sin. And by the way, you have sin. I have sin. I think I could probably get an atheist to agree with me that no one's perfect. You know what I mean? Like, we, none of us are perfect. But yet to stand before a holy God, you have to be perfect. You say, well, then what do I do? You trust the one who is perfect. He's your key. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the only way that we can come to the Father. And so if you want that promise of heaven, because that's the only way good works doesn't get us into heaven. By the way, I, I didn't mention this, but hell is where you can go and pay for your sins yourself if you want to. You can either trust for Jesus to pay for your sins or you can say, I'm going to opt to pay for them, which is crazy to think that anyone would ever even consider that. So if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm asking you to join the church. I'm asking you to, to join the head of the church, which is Jesus. And you say, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a follower of Christ. Then you get the promise that every one of your sins, every one of your marks that's been written against you, that those sins will be thrown into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought back up again. And then you've got the promise of eternal life, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If that's you and in, and in a room of this size, I'm quite certain that there's some that's here, that they have yet to surrender all of their heart to Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to invite you right now as a minister of the gospel, I want to invite you in a prayer. It's a prayer of surrender that you can pray right there at your seat, but it says to God, God, I give my heart to you. I don't look to my own good works. I don't look to, to my connections. I don't look to my education. God, I look to you, and I throw myself at your mercy. And the Bible says this. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who opens the door, I will come in. I remember when I was growing up as a kid, my parents, they, and some of you have maybe seen this picture of where Jesus is, is, is knocking on the door. And then one day I stopped and I noticed something different 
that I had never realized before. On that door, most doors have a, a door handle on both sides, but on the side where Jesus was, there was no door handle. And I thought there was a mistake until one of my parents pointed it out and explained it to me. You see, you and I are the ones who's got to open that door. But he does stand at the door, and he stands at the door of your heart this morning, and he's knocking on some of your doors. Will you let him in? Will you say, Jesus, I put my faith in you right now, and I trust you to be my Lord and my Savior. I trust the pro- that you did what was needed in order to pay for my sin by dying on the cross and, and shedding your blood so that I could be free and so that I could have the promise of heaven. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do this right now with every head up, every eye open. And yes, I said every head up and every eye open because if you cannot do that in front of a group of a follower of Jesus, then you certainly won't be able to do it whenever you leave this place. If you say, I want to, I want to serve Jesus, I want to be a Christian, put your hand up, just put it up real quick. I want to, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I know that many of you, the majority of you, have already given your life to Christ. But for those that are here or those of you that are watching online, you have not surrendered all of your heart to Jesus Christ. Right now, I want to give you that opportunity. Just put your hand up. Yeah. Who else? Okay. Anyone else? And then we're going to pray. Then here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to join with me. We're going to all together confess Jesus as Lord. And I'm going to ask the saints of God, many of whom have already prayed this prayer, even here in the same room. I'm going to ask you to join in. We're going to all confess that Jesus is Lord and pray this prayer of surrender out loud. So join me in this prayer if you would. Pray, Lord Jesus, I confess my need for a Savior. I was born a sinner in need of a Savior. And I ask you, Jesus, be my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to turn from it and be the Lord of my life. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and that you died on the cross for the sin of the world, for my sin. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave and now I want to live my life to know you and to make you known in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, can we thank God for salvation? Y'all receive God's word this morning.